Welcome to Thought Feeder. I'm John Stephen Stansel, and with me as always is Joel Goodman. And today we're just going to talk about a few things that we've got on our mind and what's going on. And, you know, one thing, Joel and I have been doing this podcast for a while, and we've been friends for, for quite a bit. And I, I know his work with Bravery and his company and, and, and some of the awesome things they do. But, Joel, I don't know your backstory. I want, like, the <laughs> Joel Goodman prequel. Like, how did you go from being in higher ed to being in charge of your own business, doing your own thing. How, how, how did this happen? How did this come about? Yeah. Uh, so I started working in higher ed in 2007. I was hired as the assistant director of public relations at Greenville College, which is now Greenville University, right outside of St. Louis. And from there, moved into a web role very quickly because like, like web stuff is just what I've done my entire life. Like I taught myself how to write HTML when I was in junior high out of the HTML 4.01 Bible, which is this massively thick book that hurts when you drop it on your foot sort of a thing. And I remember like sitting in front of my computer with notepad open on, you know, Windows 98 SE notepad open giant book in my lap, like learning how to type out table layouts and junk like that. So like web has just been web design, web development, you know, given I'm not as good, I'm like not a true programmer. I can, I can get by and, and I, I think I'm pretty good at front end. That's just been kind of like a hobby self-improvement sort of a thing. And so once I got into my first real job, despite none of what I did in school being directed at doing web stuff, I I just fell into that. And I think, I think that's a common story in higher ed. Right. (laughs) Like, well, like you, JS, you weren't planning to be a a social media manager or or do like short form content. Yeah. I've got a master's degree in literature. I was all long form. I I specialized in in novels and and just big heaping epics. Um, So so the fact that I was going to do anything in at the time, 140 characters or less now to 280. (laughs) I mean, it's beyond me. Well, I, I think it's. I think it's a pretty common tale just hearing how people got into higher ed on the administrative side in general, right? Like there there aren't that many people that go to undergrad thinking I am going to work full time in higher education as my primary industry for my career, right? I think there are some people that that kind of get into that, like probably like on the student affairs side of it, like, you know, you get a taste being an RA and you get into the inner workings and that sort of a thing. But it's not until you start working in higher ed full time that you decide, oh, I'm going to go get a doctorate in higher education administration, you know. <laughs> I, I hate to use this comparison, but it's almost like prisoners being institutionalized where like. <laughs> when they turn, they, they turn into the guards. <laughs> no, you can't. No, you just can't imagine life on the outside. Yeah. Because yeah. Uh, well, higher ed is such its own, its own kingdom it's its own 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 thing and and, you know the forays i've taken outside it's just so massively different and we spend so much time learning to navigate the silos and and all of the the red tape that goes along with being in higher ed or or, or you'll notice this when somebody comes to your institution outside of higher ed and there's a giant learning curve to how to function in higher ed so I yeah. think in a way that kind of happens, you know, for, for me, my, my goal was to go and continue to get my PhD and teach literature. And I noticed that we had a, a job, a tenure track position open at the university I was working at while I was applying for my PhD program, which I didn't go into because of this, uh, <laughs> that, that they got just a, a heaping, you know, 
just massive pile of applications all for a tenure track position at the, you know a small state school in conway arkansas the middle of nowhere to me it was like wanting to become a, a movie star without you know the yeah. same odds of that happening without the the pay and fame so i thought well what else can i do your point on this being a a very insular kind of bubble kind of a thing where like people really can't imagine what it's like on the outside there are a lot of places i could take this but one one of the detours that i found uh is that once you get into the higher ed asterisk side of of what's going on and start working as an outsider not on an institution but with institutions or not on a campus but with institutions it's it's very hard to convince the outside world that you also know what you're doing like i live in austin js you lived in the austin area for a while you know the kind of saturation that's here with tech and startups and the number of people that are trying to make it big in the you know in in that hot sector called technology <laughs> and one of the I remember when I moved to Austin in 2012 my first gig was with uh, I was just doing design work for a they were a, an ad middleware company so like when you would play games on your phone like like you used to back in 2012 like you know when when uh when Zynga had all their games and was real popular but it would like interrupt you in the middle of the game with a video ad and you'd have to like tap through it or wait for it to play or whatever we we did those or if anyone remembers Groove Shark, like the company that I was contracting with to do interface design handled all of the advertising middleware for Groove Shark. So you'd be listening to some music and then all of a sudden they would make you watch a video in the Groove Shark app or whatever, you know, before you could before you could continue listening. And the work was boring for me because it was like it's ads and whatever. Like I didn't really care about that side of things. But we were working out of one of the we were working out of the main incubator here in Austin, tech incubator, where it's kind of like co-working. Plus, there's a, a side that gives lightweight funding to people, startups to try and help them get better and gives them like mentorship and stuff. So we had co-working space there because one of the devs was related to the guy that started this thing up and i remember talking to people you know like we'd walk down to lunch with people in the co-working space and they'd say yeah so what do you do like well i came out of higher education and um, that's kind of still what i'm looking to do you know this is right as i was starting up bravery so i still want to work with universities and they're just like why you know like they didn't understand they really didn't and uh, you know you think about the you think about all the tech companies that have been trying to disrupt higher education for the last decade plus and everything they have tried to do is replace what universities do with education not help them do things better right and so it's been you know these it's been MOOCs remember when MOOCs were the big mm -hmm. topic like these massively online learning center what did the C stand for I can't remember <laughs> But it's like a giant forums. It's courseware. It's just it's a giant courseware system. And none of these people realized that like with with higher ed, like and, you know, I'll get flack for this from probably some of the listeners. But one of the one of the things that I, I think a lot of people don't realize, and I think higher ed has done a very poor job of communicating, is that the mass majority of people that go on to higher learning do not go on to do college or university because they want the college experience. 
they don't do it because they want to go to the parties and they want to do this. I mean, there there is definitely a group of students that do. And oftentimes they go to the institutions that have a whole lot of marketing power. They're a loud voice. It's state schools. It's party schools, the ones that are in the news all the time. And so you hear about them. But when you look at the total number of students in the United States alone, what that percentage is less than 20 that go to school for the traditional college experience. Less than 20% of students do that. So when we sit here and we sell higher education as being primarily this experiential thing and not the value of the outcomes that you get from what you learn, who your instructors are, the network that the university has among their alumni, you're shortchanging yourself. Like you're leaving out 80% of the population or, or something close to that that's looking to progress themselves professionally and make sure that they can set up a good life for themselves. And I think that's a problem that higher ed has. And that problem bleeds out into the other side because all these people that are trying to disrupt higher education and, and failing at it, because I think there are some that are nailing it, like our past sponsors at Podium Education, like I think they actually are nailing it. There's this whole group of people that are just like, well, yeah, if we set up these, uh, you know, these learn at home, self-paced sort of a things, it's fine. But they don't realize that the credential is what a lot of employers look at. You know, it, it took a pandemic for Google to start recognizing their own curricula as something that's valid to hire people, you know? And so, and so now we're really in trouble in higher ed because they're figuring it out. Like that, that credentialing system is finally starting to change or the acceptance of other types of credentials are really starting to change. And we still don't have messaging in line that fits where our value proposition is. The value proposition is not is not your campus as much as you want. I know that's the thing that sells it for people that visit, but just because that's one thing that sells your institution doesn't mean it's the only thing that can sell your institution. And you have to find out what those other value propositions are. And I just, I, it, it doesn't happen much. And, and people on the outside see it that way. They look at higher ed and they say, oh, you work in higher ed. Why do you do that? Well, I, I think that's kind of one of the things being on the inside. We don't I think we know we don't acknowledge like we want we want to bill ourselves as the underdog. Right. We're we're, we're the scrappy underdog. And, and, and to the same some degree, we are like budgets are low, especially at state schools like state funding is constantly cut. We're asked to do more with less all the time. And we, we, we think of ourselves as the underdog because we are working very much as an underdog. But outside, when people look at our institutions, they don't see that. They see rising tuition costs. They see administrative bloat. They see new buildings going up on campus. They don't understand the donation see, structure and that somebody... They see waste. They see waste. They see that. They don't see all of the other things going on beneath that. And I think we need to do a better job of telling that story and explaining some of these things and then showing those things, showing showing that professor who gives yeah. that, you know, one-on-one -on -one interaction with the student, you know, that isn't in the big flashy building all the time. Right. Because really what people see is, like you said, it's, it's, it's the waste and they see rising tuition costs. And there are plenty of people that I know in higher education on the on the content side of things, creating web content, creating, you know, social media content or whatever that recognize that there's a huge gap there, that that is a massive content gap at their institution telling those actual stories in, in a good way. And I think, again, I mean, I think we've said it before. I think one of the big problems is that they're just underfunded. Well, 
we've, we've gone to the fact. wrong things. Because you, you hit on something that, that I think is really important in higher ed. And, and one, one reason why, it, 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 I don't want to say it's prime for disruption, but it is. Or, or so many people want to disrupt it. it, it you, 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 know, you talked about talking to other people in the tech field outside of higher ed and them saying, like, why would you want to be in higher ed? Well, that perception is why we have trouble attracting good talent in higher yeah. ed and yeah. keeping good talent. Because one, the pay is really low, the red tape is very high, and the type of work that you're going to be doing a lot of times is going to be hindered. And I think a lot of people in, in, in tech industries who are being courted by yeah. those outside of higher ed are like, hey, I can go work on this amazing project and have a lot of creative freedom and be able to ship a product that's really amazing. Or I can go work on a higher ed homepage that I'm going to have to fight somebody to not put a carousel on the front. Yeah. I don't want to do that and, and get paid peanuts for it. So I think you the, know, if the reason we're the underdog JS is, or, or, or I think it's kind of a complex that we have an underdog complex, but the reason that that higher ed is the underdog is that it's that exact thing you just said. It's that we don't provide the salaries and the environment for the best talent to feel like they can thrive at universities. And, and I think on the other side, like you were saying earlier, people that grow up in higher ed feel trapped and they may have a ton of talent, but they're not, they're not valued enough in terms of being paid or in terms of being given the decision-making power that and, they should have. And I, I want to hit on this because I, I think a lot of people will come back and say, well, higher ed doesn't have the money to, to provide those salaries to top yes, talent. But but here's the thing. Well, you, let, let's just for the sake of argument, let's say that's absolutely the case, right? I, where, where, did, where did Purdue dump millions of dollars? Well, for oh, just, was, was it into plexiglass instead of into staff? Uh, uh, I don't know. Like I know. I, I, uh, allow me to play devil's advocate here, though. <laughs> Quality talent, you know, not every, you know, as much as I, I do need money to, to support a family and all that. Sure. Money, I'm not going to say money's not important, but I work in higher ed and I, I don't have as big of a salary that I would get working outside of higher ed. But I do it because I, I love and I believe in the mission. And if you can add on top of that, being able to work on projects that I think are really exciting and really interesting, my, my loyalty is going to increase tenfold. And if you're going to give me the creative freedom to make those things happen, I, I'm, I'm as loyal as they come. Like, yeah. that's that's great. That's what I wanted. I, I'd, I'd much rather be doing that than anything else. So I, I don't think it all always comes down to to salary to attract no. good talent. It comes like freedoms, like being able to work remotely professional yeah. development and and that's the problem right is that the intrinsic motivators are so much more powerful than than the money i think there are some people that do just want the money what really sucks when you work for a university and this isn't every university but when you work for a university is that you don't get the money you don't actually usually get the really good projects or if you're doing a really good really cool project there are 20 other voices that have to have some sort of say that make it not nearly as good as it could have been and you then see what universities are doing right now in the middle of a pandemic and it makes it very hard to to feel bought into the message the messaging anyway like you feel almost culpable in what institutions are are doing to students like bringing students back to campus and and letting covid run rampant and being totally disingenuous about it well and again that comes back to telling the story because there's yeah we we, we, we can get into this and and you know a lot of times we're not in the room when how these decisions are made but the perception that the public has 
of what, what's going on right now in university yep. campuses. We're not telling that story. It comes back to perception is reality, right? That new building that's going up on, on your, your campus that's cost millions of dollars that was donated by a donor who earmarked that, that money for, for that. Well, you know, the average Joe on the street passes by and thinks, man, they're raising right. tuition and putting up new buildings. They don't understand that. And we're not explaining that. We're not telling those stories. And we're expecting people just to know. Like, yeah. we, we have to be open. We have to be transparent. We have to talk about those, those real things. And when it comes down to, to why are we making these decisions on, on COVID, let's be, there's a credibility gap in higher ed right now. And yeah. r- regardless of what the intentions are, it's what people actually believe that aren't in higher ed. And we need, we need to start thinking about that. I think back to when Harvard was announcing that they were making cuts to staffing on their campus several months ago, and I remember Twitter blowing up about how big is their endowment and everything. I mean, yeah, their endowment's big, but endowments are very strictly regulated. They can't just like pull their endowment out and subsidize people's uh, salaries with that. But the general public doesn't understand how an endowment works. They don't understand what... It, what cash is reserved, how that cash can be used, what an endowment is for. But, and then the, and then universities don't do anything to further communicate that in a way that helps people. And and that's detrimental, right? It, it's it's a communication oh, oh, issue. Allow me to, to contradict myself because I, I agree we need to be more transparent, <laughs> but like, how are we going to do it? Do you, do you really think the average person is going to sit down and read an article about how endowments work? No, definitely not. But I mean... But you, but you get ahead of the message, right? I mean, it's it's crisis comms. It's it's really like banal crisis comms because why should your endowment be part of a crisis communication campaign? But at the same time, like if that's what everyone is talking about, you get ahead of it somehow. You say we have this endowment, but honestly, we can't spend the money, and these are the reasons. It could be on Twitter. It could be it could be a quick YouTube video. Like I mean, there are so many ways that you can make that information digestible. Well, it it comes into. To, to false equivalencies amongst those not in higher ed. I think a good example of this is, I, I can't remember the name, but at, at Baylor, the, the the twin influencers that they're paying oh, right yeah. now, that yeah. they recently caught COVID and and that came out like, okay, well, they're uh, they're compensating these influencers somewhere. Well, we can compensate influencers, but we can't compensate a- athletes. Yeah. Well, those two <laughs> things are not anywhere remotely in the same camp, but to somebody outside making that, comparison that makes complete and total sense why can you compensate student influencers on instagram but you can't compensate athletics now i mean we know all the the myriad reasons that keep that from happening whether you agree with whether it should happen or not but the 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 equivalency between paying an influencer and paying an athlete it's not the same thing Right. Right. It's not the university. It's, you know, NCAA regulations and all these other other things that that come into to athletes and then pain and influencer. That's just the marketing team going, hey, yeah, let's give these, you know, these kids some swag. And we also don't know how they were paid. We don't know how they were compensated. It wasn't monetary. Was it some sort of scholarship? That, you know, as long as you're an influencer and you're learning how to do this and you're staying in this program, you can have this scholarship. We just don't we don't know how like how that was set up either. So yeah, but the perception, again, the perception is something that is very real and it colors how people outside of the inner working of higher education look at and perceive our colleges. And they perceive it differently. And they, and well, they don't perceive what we're selling as an actual product. They're like, higher ed is using influencers. Well, that, that seems sketchy. Like every single marketing agency is using influencers right now. Like it's not like the techniques that we use to market higher ed are no different than what we use to 
to, to sell soda pop, right? And this is this is the point. So I was saying, and eventually we'll get back to my story, but I was saying that when I was talking to people outside of higher ed, they're like, why do you work in higher ed? Like one of the one of the hard things that I've found is that when you want to make the change from having been in higher ed for a while to any other industry and you want to retain the same status, the same position in a company, it's not going to happen because most companies outside of higher ed, and I think it's I think it's a, it's a two-way view, right? It's like, I would never go work in higher ed because blah, 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 blah. And then it's like, I would never hire someone coming out of higher ed because the perception is they don't have the skills. They haven't dealt with the same things that X agency has okay. dealt with. But it's all the same stuff. It's all yes. the same. Yes. And I, I, I want to clarify this to anybody who's listening that like some some of these are like, I would say that's some of my own insecurity about my, my professional career of like, okay, well, and you know, how is higher ed perceived outside of, of our quote unquote ivory towers? Or even, you know, the idea of like, sometimes I think higher ed is perceived as where business people go to have take their golden yeah. parachute, you know, okay, I, I'm tired, tired of the hustle and bustle of, of business. So I'm going to quit working at this company it's like, and I'm going to go work at a university. And it's like it's, sports, sports. Uh, so JS won't get this, but it's like a, it's like an English premier league player going to the MLS in their retirement. It's a, it's, you know, like that's the perception, like talking about the baseball player going to the Japan <laughs> league for a bit. I know that. Sure. That works. Yeah. <laughs> And, and that that's really, pro- I mean, I've had, so I've owned my agency for eight years, uh, a little, a little bit over. I've worked on lots of great projects. We did design in a stupid short amount of time, design and build for the college of business at Cornell back a few years ago. I've done tons of work for Loyola Marymount university in LA. I've, you know, destroyed Melt for them. We redesigned National University's website and generated like eight to ten million dollars of additional revenue in one year for them. Like I've done really good work. Work that when I tell people outside of higher ed that we've done it, they're like, oh wow, that's really impressive. But at the same time, I've because freelance is is lean or because, you know, contract work is kind of lean, especially like right now, like a lot of universities aren't hiring agencies or they're going back to safety and they're hiring the agency they've worked with forever, but their budgets aren't there. They're not spending the money on this marketing stuff. And so when work is lean and there have been times in the last couple of years where I've looked outside and be like, maybe I need to shut down the agency, you know, real talk. Maybe I need to shut down what I'm doing and actually go get a real job again, which I don't want to do because I don't. It just sounds terrible to me. But I've sat down with people. Well, and let's check out the language, too. You have a real job. Like I know. I have a real job. There's a a traditional job versus... A traditional job where someone else is paying me and is providing benefits. And I have to work in an office. You know, like, I, I feel like what I do, like, I have a lot of control, right? To some extent. Like, I can take a day off if I want to. I often don't because I have work going on. And so I don't feel like I can take a day off. But... You know, ha- having that, having a rigid structure in place from someone else that's that's being put, like, I, I think you're right. Yeah, I have a real job now. I really do. And I do a lot of really good real work. Going to a traditional office setting, I've sat down and I've interviewed with hiring managers for, like, product manager positions. Uh, things that I've done for, a de- I've done these things since before there were labels and names for them. And I've done them successfully. 
But because I work in higher education, even on the fringes, even as even as an external consultant that comes into institutions, they just they just kind of like, yeah, I really don't know how we'd find a place for you here. And it's not because I haven't done great work. It's because they don't understand that higher education is the exact same thing. We attract the same people. We, you know, we have the same demographic as most popular brands do. If you're working on in the online education and adult education space, like you're competing with a lot of things. And and if you're successful at it, you're doing really good work. But going on to look at a job outside of higher education after being stuck in it is it's very hard to do because the public perception is that we we are not up to speed, you know. It's not that we're not competent, it's that we are way behind. And it- well, for an industry that that builds itself on innovation as much as higher ed does, I don't think we are definitely not perceived as being innovative. It's cuz it's cuz our students are the ones that are doing the innovative work, we are not. And that's that's always been since I since I was an undergrad student working you know kind of closely with administrators on various big projects like my undergrad we had a music festival that was entirely student run and i was a big part of that and we worked with a couple of vice presidents on it we had to work with the business office we worked the president every once in a while there there was a lot of like inner workings in higher ed and one of the big things that i kept seeing over and over again and one of the reasons why i was actually okay coming into higher ed and one of the things that's made me stick in higher ed is that universities have so much potential to do incredible things and they don't and they need people internally or they need people working in the industry to help them figure out how to reach that potential. And it's it still just frustrates me to know when. I mean, I'll be honest, like in the last three months, there have been at least five times where I have sat down and been like should I even stay in this industry? Like we still don't care. Even in the middle of a pandemic, there's not enough work being done to get us to a point where we are actually doing what we can. Like we're nowhere near fulfilling the potential that we have as universities. And I think one big part of that is that innovation side. That's one big indicator. So that we we train students to go out and be critical thinkers and start their own companies or go do incredible work at other companies and save the world and, you know, create all kinds of things and and find cures and all of that. And unless you're a research institution, how are you being innovative? Like how like it's your students that are doing it. And then you're not even telling those stories. You're not even showing that, hey, these students are are changing the world and it's because of the education that they got at our university and it, i don't get why there's a gap there i don't get why why higher ed and of course these are generalizations cuz i know plenty of people that want to do this work and are trying hard and i think even they are frustrated a lot of times because they're not given the latitude to actually do the work that they want to and it's all connected but i I don't understand why higher ed seems to be content to just sit and do the same thing that they have always done 
because up until now, it's always worked. It was, you know, for the past 50 to 70 years, right? It's kind of, you go out of high school and you go to college. That's what you do. So the main difference, JS, the main difference between how higher ed approaches this stuff and how successful companies that, that are run pretty much the same way, it's, it's, I think it's a mentality issue, is that companies are always striving to make things better. They're always striving to optimize. They're always striving to figure out, is there a better way to do this thing? Is there a way that we can maximize the return potential on our customer? Is there a way that we can keep them coming back? These questions can be rephrased for higher ed. Is there a way to better engage our students so that when they're alumni, they continue to give us money? Is there a way for us to improve the delivery methods of our education and our curriculum so that it's not dependent on people being in person just in case, God forbid, a pandemic hits? All of these business cases can be translated into different ways that apply to higher education, but higher ed is still content to not look at those things, you know? I think on the educational side, there are tons of faculty that look at improving pedagogy. They sit and they figure out how can they better teach, better improve the learning that their students are, are doing? How can they facilitate that better? But on our side with systems, it's who gave us the best sales pitch on a CRM? And oh, there are only three that are doing anything. And it doesn't matter if they're actually good. It doesn't matter if they actually save you time. It's that you knew someone or they showed you some fancy things and you don't have the internal resources to actually put towards evaluating whether or not it's a viable solution or if it's going to even affect your business goals. And that's a big issue. That's That is such a huge gap between what actually goes on in the business world and and how higher ed got behind, honestly. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so I back to back to my story. I So how did you get into higher ed, Joel? <laughs> like it was accidental and then I couldn't leave. How, how, how did you end up starting your own business? So I, I spent three and a half years at Greenville as their web person. I went through, it was the last major recession where everyone was laying, every, where every school was laying off staff. And I survived because I was the only person that did web. I actually had, I had a second developer working with me for about six months and then he got laid off, which really sucked. The president had left. We had an interim president that was basically, he was a hatchet man. Like he just came in, cleaned house to some extent. I think there were poor decisions made. Like my direct boss was fired after being there forever and ever and ever. And then they shook everything up. Like they moved me from the advancement office where marketing was over to IT because they were like, hey, why not put the computers with the other computers, you know? We could do a whole episode on, on higher ed restructuring <laughs> and just where different things belong. I will say like I had way better access to IT resources once I got there. Like as someone that is a... That's a marketer that also like writes code and and is kind of a, a tech nerd. Like I didn't really have that big of an issue with it. I thought I was more like just chuckling, like you guys have no idea how to market. And so I did that. I had gone through a, a CMS migration there. Like we had gone from our first CMS uh, that was Joomla that launched, I think, when I was a student. 
to moving to to dot cms shout out to dot cms that still exists actually a really cool platform that no one accepted except for a few of us and there are some people that complained about it a ton but from a development standpoint it was really cool and they've made really awesome strides on the product i think so like we did all of that like and i handled 80 percent of it the, that 20 percent is when i got my own dev but the rest of the time it was like i was i was building i was redesigning i was writing content I was working with our photographer to go take photos. I was taking photos like it was it was a lot of work. And I got that up and running in the middle of all of the upheaval of people being laid off and me being moved over to IT and that sort of thing. My senior vice president of advancement moved up to Trinity International University, north of Chicago. And I followed him up six months after he left because it was a massive pay raise. I mean, like. Living in rural Southern Illinois, doing all of the web work and finding out that at the end of the month, you and your wife who are renting a house that you're from your parents, you know, my parents bought, bought a house there and we were renting it from them. So we got a good deal because <laughs> my parents love me <laughs> and we did a bunch of renovation work on it while we were there. But working in rural Illinois at a small college, we had like, I want to say like at the end of the month, we had like $16 left over in our budget for just fun. So it was like we could drive to a Starbucks outside of town or something, you know, like that was about all we could do. And so I I needed a change. Like there wasn't any progression. There really wasn't any chance of me making more money there. There wasn't really any chance of me moving up. And we were in the St. Louis metro, like we couldn't even go to St. Louis and do fun things you know, because we didn't have the money to do it. So I went up to Chicago. It was like double my salary, um, which was awesome. But I also was the only web person still. And we had the main university site. There was the graduate school. There was the seminary. There were two regional centers. There was a law school website. And there was one other. I think I think total I had eight sites that I had to manage and deal with as well as an intranet. And I was there for two years. And that ended up being basically I, I redesigned, rebuilt, rewrote from the ground up. We, we actually contracted M Stoner for some content help and information architecture help. Shout out to Voltaire because Voltaire is awesome. <laughs> and I love the folks at M Stoner. I did a ground up, redesign, rewrite, rebuild on a new CMS for eight sites in six months while doing an online an online master's program through the new school in New York, nine credit hours a semester, full-time work. And so I was, I think the website itself, I was probably doing about 80 hours a week. And then I was doing all of my grad school work at the same time. So there, I would like, I would get up at like 5 a.m. I would do an hour of schoolwork. I would do an hour of web work while I drank coffee. I'd get to work. I would do all day working on the website. I would go home. I would work on the website some more, eat dinner, do another hour or two of schoolwork, and then do more web work and do it again. Like I was probably I was probably sleeping four or five hours a night. And I would do it six days a week. Like Saturdays I wouldn't go into the office, but I would still be working on the website stuff at home. And I know that there are other people that have done this in higher ed. It's not sustainable. I remember my wife coming up to me at one point and being like, you're going to have a heart attack. You need to find a way out of this. Finally got the sites launched. It must have been something like August. And then come November for Thanksgiving, we were driving to my wife's parents' house uh, from Chicago to West Virginia. And 
I remember the day we were leaving, my boss calling me in and saying, hey, I noticed that you've only been you've been working 40 hours a week. You know, you've you've been only doing like your your 830 to to 430. That's a minimum like as a salary person, I was, I got so mad. I was like, you have no idea what I have done at the time. You know, you're not thinking about free work. You're young in your career and you're, you're salaried. And so like, you know, there's the stability side of it, but there's a real toll when a company takes advantage of the work that you do. And, and at that point I was, I was very close to, to finishing my degree. And I remember shortly after that being at home, so I remember I had done Georgie Cohen, shout out to Georgie, a lot of shout outs today. Georgie Cohen had uh, was starting up her own consulting project. And so I had worked on a website for her just to help her out. And oh, I should say, like, I've been doing like freelance web projects for people for that entire work time, like at Trinity and when I was at Greenville as well. So like I had a nice little portfolio of WordPress sites that I had built for for bands and actors and optometrists and professionals like Georgie. And I remember Georgie had, she'd gone to the UK. I think she had gone to South by or something as well at some point. So she sent me a greetings from Austin postcard. I recommend anyone Google this. It's a very iconic mural that we have here in, here in town. Uh, she sent me a postcard of that and a bunch. I think she sent me some curly whirlies from, that she brought back from London and some airwaves gum, which is my favorite as just a thank you. And it was super nice. We took that postcard and we put it up on our tack board in the kitchen. And probably a week or two after that, I said, Hey Jess, we got to figure out what to do. Like I'm almost done with my master's. I, I don't really want to stay here. I don't know that I want to start applying to other universities. Like, do we stay in higher ed? Do we figure something else out? And we had been thinking about where to go. And she's like, Hey, what about Austin? And this was right after the, this is right after high ed web, uh, Austin in what, 2011. And I had driven down from Chicago with Aaron Rester, shout out to Aaron Rester and, <laughs> and had had a great time. It was, it was a really fun conference roomed with Seth O'Dell, shout out to Seth O'Dell. And the conference itself was great. I loved Austin. I thought it was a cool town. Hadn't really thought about it anymore. But once we'd gotten that postcard from Georgie, like my wife had like gotten on Google and said, well, where are the young people moving? You know, and Austin was the thing that came up. So we actually got to Austin, I would say six months to a year before it really started exploding with just everyone with tech dreams, you know, moving to Hollywood with dreams of being an actor or moving to New York with dreams of being on Broadway. It's like I'm moving to Austin with dreams of being a tech millionaire that can afford to live somewhere because it's not San Francisco. I can afford to live in Austin now, right? <laughs> well, back then you could. And that was the thing. Like, I mean, moderately, like we, we lucked out. We got a great condo with views of downtown that was cheaper than honestly, it was probably like $800 cheaper than anyone else in the building was paying for theirs. And it was cheaper than what we had been paying for our townhouse in the North Chicago burbs. And we were like a mile from downtown. Like, I mean, it was perfect. So Austin really was affordable. And that first contract I had was really good. And I just decided that higher ed was going to be the industry because I had the network from high ed web. I'd had the network from being online in different groups from Twitter that was where I had my connections. But I think one of the best decisions I made was choosing a, a niche to actually work in. You know, like I think there are a lot of people that start out on their own. And they're like, I'm just going to be available to everyone. That's fine. But there are a lot of people that are just general web people, right? It's better if you can say, I'm an expert in this particular channel, this particular field, this particular industry. 
and try to own that. Oh, definitely. That's one thing, you know, when I when I left the Texas Department of Transportation, my, my one foray outside of higher ed and the government, which is not that different from Government's ed, very similar, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> similar. But, you know, as my exit interview, you know, my, my boss asked me, you know, what, what should I look for in the, the next person I hire? And I said, you need to hire internally. You need somebody, you know, who understands the Department of Transportation and its issues. You can teach them the social media and communications part a lot easier than you can working in a government system and, you know, the details of traffic management. Yeah. Yeah. Actual literal traffic management, as in cars, not <laughs> web traffic. Or office traffic, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think, so, I think, JS, one of the symptoms that, that comes with working in higher ed for a while, and I think, honestly, I, like, I've taught, I've taught college classes in web design, and at the undergrad level, I remember I taught at Texas State, which you know, for a semester, and I remember the students in my my intro to interaction design class being very, they, they were convinced that they had to go spend time at an agency before they could step out and do their own thing. Or that the only way to do valid work was to work at, at an agency. For them, you know, it was a communication design program. They're thinking ad agency, marketing agency, whatever. I've never had that <laughs> mentality. I've always been entrepreneurial. Like personally, I've always thought like, how do I get out and work for myself and provide jobs for other people or do really good work? Because the constraints of working for someone that may not do as good a work as I do drives me nuts. Like that, that idea just, it, I don't know. I don't, I don't like the idea of having to do that. And so I think that's something that happens within higher ed too. I think that's something that happens with anyone that's worked at a job where you have benefits and you have the consistent paycheck. There's a real fear there, right, of stepping out and, and doing something on your own because you don't know if it's going to succeed. And that's why starting to take freelance and moonlight sort of projects is really important. I think one, just for personal self-esteem. I've said on past episodes, like, I don't suffer from imposter syndrome. It's just I'm a very confident person. And it's the same thing with stepping out and starting my own business. Like, failure was never something that I considered was ever going to happen. I was going to make it work regardless. If I needed to switch and pivot to something else, that's cool. But I was never going to let it get to the point where... I didn't have the money and I couldn't do this work. I mean, I might have to like take a job here and there, but the goal was always to make sure that I was running my own company and that I was providing for other people. And that's, I think that's a very specific mentality that not everyone has. I don't think that I know that that is a very specific mentality that not everyone has. And I wouldn't even say the majority of people have that mentality. So in order to help get someone to that place, I, I do think it's very important to freelance. So if you can, if you don't have, you know, a non-compete and you want to work in higher education and you want to think about stepping out on your own or seeing if you can, if you can make the jump to being a consultant or, you know, or working at an agency, just do some tester projects, find a network and say like, look, I need some practice doing this. Can you help? Or I need to see if I can make money doing this and can manage my own project. You know, do you have any projects that are coming up? The other thing is that it's better to make the jump before you get laid off. Speaking in particular about the pandemic, 
if you hear rumblings that your university is going to be cutting jobs and you think you may be one of them, if you make the jump before that happens, you can attempt to lock in a contract to continue doing work or to continue on the projects that you were doing until they find a replacement for you. And not only does that give you something to put into your professional portfolio and the client to put on your client list, it gives you a safety buffer you know, as you step out and try to do stuff on your own. For me, before we made the jump to move to Austin, I had lined up some contract work. I had made sure that we at least had the same income that that I had had before. And that helped uh, in terms of making sure we had a net in case we fell. And I think like putting those structures in place is very important if if you're more on the I don't want to say timid because that sounds bad, but you know, like if you're not on the the overly confident side that I am on. Well, no, I, I think it comes back. And you know, for me, like that's something I've always had a salaried position, yeah. and you know, my parents worked salaried jobs, and and just that it's hard to give up that consistency yeah. and benefits of like, yep. hey. I've got a three-year-old. I've got health insurance. Yeah. Like it's really, you know. Um, and be- benefits are benefits are a huge thing to weigh because health insurance is expensive. And for those of us that live in the United States, our healthcare system is not focused on taking care of citizens. It's focused on pulling in as much money out of your wallet as it possibly can. And so I think the U.S. actually makes it a lot harder. For people to step out on their jobs by tying health insurance to the work that we do. Like right now, I mean, I'll be honest, I don't have health insurance right now because my wife got laid off at the beginning of COVID and we were on her company's benefit plan. And so what do we do? Well, we stay in our house and we make sure that we don't injure ourselves and we make sure that we don't go out anywhere where we can possibly get sick because we won't be able to afford it. And it sucks like you know like it it's it sucks but at the same time we we hope that we will have health insurance again soon but it would be way better if health insurance was was something that our taxes paid for you know because i already pay taxes i haven't worked for a for a university or a company in 8 years and so when we've had health insurance it's been one it was through the the ACA when that launched through the public market which was still very expensive and before that, it was just independent, an independent plan that we had set up through through a company that then stopped servicing Texas when the ACA went through. And it's never been cheap. It has been very, very expensive. And so that's something you have to weigh. Like if you if you can't have enough income to pay for health insurance or you don't have a spouse or partner that has a benefits package at their job that can apply to you, that's a very it's a very real concern and one that we we deal with, my family deals with every every day. We don't have any kids, which is which is helpful in you know, in some ways and in, in on a financial standpoint. But it's you know, but it also like it also limits us. If we wanted to have kids, like we we couldn't do that right now. You know, we can't even plan for that sort of a thing because there's no guarantee that we're going to have health insurance to cover those costs or that we'll be able to survive financially as, as a family. Benefits are a plus. So, I mean, yeah, but I think kind of goes with what you're, you're saying, you know, while you're employed, test the waters of freelancing and, and get a few gigs under your belt and see before, before making that leap, before jumping out of the plane. And I think with that, there's probably an opportunity coming where other people at other institutions will 
be in a similar position as you, either wanting to leave, wanting to make the jump before being laid off or being laid off, unfortunately, there may be opportunities to partner with people. You know, if you can get two or three people together with great minds that are driven and want to want to do really good work and have good connections, you got yourself a mini agency, right? You got yourself a mini partnership there and you, I mean, you can go and do this. And that's, bravery has been set up that way from the start. I don't have any full-time employees other than myself. I give contract work out to friends that want to do, that need to do work and that are really good at what they do. Well, it's, it's interesting because every single place I've, I've worked at and done marketing in, the, the department has joked we should just quit and start our own agency. Like yeah. every single place I've worked, it's yep. the same running joke. Like hey, we've got so much talent here, we should start our own agency. It's like there is so much talent in higher ed. <laughs> like there's so many talented people. Yeah, and I hate to say it, some of that talent is being being squandered in certain places, and and finding ways to tap into that and tap into that community. I mean, there, there's just so much potential there. I think I think everyone has to get to a point where they recognize that their work, their expertise, their selves are not being valued enough by the place that they're working or that they are not and haven't been achieving the level of excellence in the work that they do that, that they could be. And then the decision is, am I happy sitting in that spot? And I think that's totally fine. Some people are. I'm not like I'm I I don't want to do mediocre work. I don't ever want to. That's kind of the hard part with running an agency is that sometimes you end up pushing work out that is not up to the standard that you want and you have to fight to make it better. And it's you know, it's exactly the same as working internally at a university where you may be a awesome designer or have a really good concept for a marketing campaign or a really good writer. And then it goes through some administration whose expertise and knowledge is not in marketing or design or or whatever else, who's not as close to the data as you are, is not as close to the research, is not as close to the students or you know, whatever it is that you're doing. And that work gets watered down. It's exactly the same on the outside. The thing is that, I don't know, I feel a little bit more empowered to say, you know what, you you paid me to, to do this work the right way. And this is what's going to happen if we do it your way, <laughs> you know, sort of a thing. If you'd like to talk to me more about how you can step out and do freelancing or any concerns you're saying for your business, I'd be happy to talk to you. You can find me at Joel Goodman on Twitter. JS and I really appreciate your listening to our show. If you like it, please leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Spotify or Google Podcasts, and you'll be notified of every future episode as it comes out. If you'd like to listen to past episodes, you can find us at thoughtfeederpod.com. We've got transcripts of every single one of those. And you can also find us on Twitter at thoughtfeedpod, where we'd love to talk to you and connect on anything having to do with higher ed, digital marketing, social media marketing, etc. Thanks so much for listening. Thoughtfeeder is a production of University Insight.